Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. Now, before I get started, I want to make a super fun announcement. Next week, and by next week, I mean this coming Saturday night, June 27th, we're going to get the band back together again. And by that, I mean we're going to have our first church gathering ever since this whole pandemic took hold. Now, next week, watch your email. The elders and I are going to be putting out a video that's going to update everybody on future plans as best we can plan how and when we're going to be able to do church in person again. Um, We're going to give you an update on the ministry, a financial update on the condition of the church, how the ministry's fared over the last bunch of months. Some of you might even know that some churches are actually opening back up again because we're permitted to have 50 people at a time. At Menham Hills, though, when you take into consideration the size of the worship team, the tech crews, the staff, that would fill up half of the allotted spots. And so we know we can't have indoor services just yet, But what we're going to do next Saturday night, in compliance with the governor's executive order, is throw a Menham Hills Community Church tailgate and watch party right here in our parking lot. We're going to move this big old LED wall outside. You're going to bring your picnic elements, a a blanket, maybe some chairs, and we're going to have a watch party together. That's right. What you're doing on your couch this morning, we're going to do gathered in the parking lots next week. We're going to record the worship and sermon a little bit earlier in the week, get it all edited, and then instead of just viewing it at home, those of us that are up for it, we're going to hang out outside together and view it together on the big screen. Now, we're hoping to get an ice cream truck for the kids. We're going to stay socially distanced, but weather permitting, we're at least going to be able to be together and worship together for the first time in months. We're going to keep you posted on this with details during the week through email and social media. Don't worry if you can't make it the same service that we watch outside on the LED wall Saturday night. will be rebroadcast on your TV, your computers, Sunday morning, just like usual. And I mean, if you're a church person, this is a dream come true. You can watch it with us together on Saturday night, wake up Sunday morning, and do it all over again online. I am so looking forward to seeing all of your faces again next Saturday night. Now, as you know, today is Father's Day. As somebody once said, it's kind of like Mother's Day, except the gift is cheaper. This week in my sermon prep, I read about a mom who was out with her little four-year-old girl walking, and she picked something off the ground and started to put it in her mouth. Mom took it away, of course, and said, don't do that. And so the little girl said, why not? Well, because it's on the ground, said her mother. You don't know where it's been. It's dirty. It's probably loaded with germs. It can make you sick. And so the child looked at her mom with total admiration and said, Mommy, how do you know all this stuff? You're so smart. The mother said, well, all moms know this stuff. It's on the mom's test. You have to know it or they don't let you be a mom. And so there was silence for a minute or so as the child thought it through, and she said, oh, I get it. And if you don't pass the test, you have to be the daddy. Now, that's cute, and it's innocent. But as I read it, I couldn't help but wonder if what that little girl said in her childish ignorance hasn't kind of taken hold a bit in our culture. Now, as a kid growing up, I'd watch the repeats that were on TV of the the shows from the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. Maybe you remember then the role of dad was vaunted. From Ward Cleaver to Mike Brady, TV dads were strong, loving, smart, courageous. My favorite movie of all time, uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Most of you have probably seen it. There's that one scene where a young George Bailey finds himself in a bind trying to figure out what to do, and he looks up on the wall of the drugstore, and there's a sign that says in big letters, Ask Dad. He knows. 
But something happened to dad along the way. He, at least culturally, has now morphed into more or less a, a buffoon. Word Cleaver was exchanged for Homer Simpson. Mike Brady was swapped out for Al Bundy. Dads went from being vital and important to optional and somewhat tedious. It's not just... It's not just then, too. I mean, even here in the words today, the stereotype, it's taken hold. If, if you tell a corny joke, it's not a corny joke, it's a dad joke. Guy's on the beach with a couple too many pounds around the middle. He isn't chubby. He's got a dad bod. And so, gentlemen, I am here this morning to declare to you good news, good tidings of great joy. You are not a buffoon, and you are not optional. You are ordained by God to be and carry incredible responsibility and significance in the life of your child. And guys, what I fear is that as you and I keep hearing the voices and the jokes and we see the caricatures, it's going to start to seep in and we're going to believe it. We're going to start to think that maybe our roles, our responsibilities are not that great. Our role is not one that needs to be taken serious. I mean, sure, we need to provide, but but maybe there's not much else expected from us. Guys, I'm here to tell you that that is not how God ordained your role in your home and with your kids. The statistics tell a very different story than the culture is telling you. I'm going to give you some sobering numbers. Many of you know in this country right now we're struggling with an epidemic of teen suicides. But did you know, interestingly enough, 63% of all teen suicides are from fatherless homes. That's five times the average. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes, 32 times the average. 85% of all kids who show behavioral disorders, they come from fatherless homes, 20 times the average. And 71% of kids who drop out of high school come from fatherless homes, nine times the average. I can't help but wonder, is it possible that what our nation is struggling against the most isn't a drug epidemic or a violence epidemic or even a viral pandemic. Is it possible that at the root of so many of our shared societal ills is a fatherless epidemic? Now look, guys, I know my audience. It's one of the first things you discover as somebody that speaks a lot. And while Mother's Day is, next to Easter and Christmas, the most attended church service of the year, let's just say that Father's Day is usually something less than that. And so I'm going to try to keep my remarks brief, which is so hard because there's so much to say about being a dad. And nobody teaches us guys anything. You ever heard a Father's Day sermon before? Probably not. Because pastors tend to speak to the audience. But this is part of the problem. See, as a guy, nobody teaches or trains us up in the art of fathering. And it's by far the most important job we're ever going to do. Think about it. We spend more time learning to drive than we do learning to father. And trust me, if you think driving without training is dangerous, fathering without training is outright scary. Here's what I know about being a dad. 27 years ago, at least. Here's what I, I knew 27 years ago when my wife was expecting. This is what I knew. I, I wanted a boy, and I couldn't wait to teach him to play sports. That's what I knew. And that was the goal. I had a lot of plans and dreams, but they were all mine. Now, God had different plans and, and different dreams because what I got was a somewhat unathletic little girl, which, by the way, who, by the way, has grown up to be the love of my life. 
And so with a myriad of things that I could share with you this morning, that I've learned about being a dad over the last 27 years and raising four kids, I'm just going to share one this morning. And interestingly enough, it's actually not even something you should do, dads. I'm going to tell you something you absolutely should not do. Now, the first time I became aware of this principle was when my kids were little and I was doing what dads do. I was busting their chops a little bit, pushing their buttons, getting them riled up over something. I don't remember what it was. And all of a sudden, my wife bursts out. Now, remember, if you know uh, Joan's story, my story, my wife grew up in, in a super religious household, and, and she had a lot of scripture piled up in that head of hers, and she blurts out, fathers, don't exasperate your children. I kind of looked at her and said, what? What is it? What's that? What's that mean? And she repeated it. She said, the Bible says, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Now, at that point, I didn't know all that much about the Bible, and frankly, I wasn't all that certain about what exasperate meant. So I just kind of took it as don't pick on your kids, which seems like a pretty good parenting tip. But what my wife was actually blessing me with and our children with is what I've now discovered over the years, the key fathering principle, and it's laid out repeatedly in the Scripture, and one that was, when it was written, quite frankly, revolutionary. There's a theologian, William Barclay. He describes the role of the father in the first century, and it is quite different than the one we discussed earlier. He writes, in the ancient world, children were very much under the domination of their parents. The supreme example was the Roman patria potestis, the law of the father's power. Under it, a parent could do anything he liked with his child sell him into slavery, he could make him work like a laborer on his farm. He even had the right to condemn his child to death and to carry out the execution. All of the privileges, all of the rights belonged to the parent and all of the duties to the child. When a baby was born into a Roman family, it was brought out and laid before the father. And if he picked it up, it meant that he was accepting it into the home. But if he didn't pick it up, it meant that the child was rejected. It could be sold, given away, or set outside the door, the door closed, and the baby would freeze to death in the exposure. And that was quite legal. And so when the Apostle Paul, remember now, Paul was the church's first great missionary, started out as the church's first great persecutor, but because he has this very tangible, real, historically, historically documented encounter with the risen Jesus, he has a radical transformation. He gives up all of his power and authority that he had in the temple structure in Israel, and he hits the road to, to proclaim that Jesus was the Messiah sent from God. And as Paul went around the ancient world, he would set up churches. After you get past the first four books in the New Testament, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you, what you have predominantly are letters that Paul wrote to the churches he set up. And believe it or not, those letters on two different occasions to two different churches, Paul gives fathers one simple command. You see it in the letter he wrote to the church in the city of Ephesus and in the letter he wrote to the church in the city of Colossae. They both start with what would have been a very familiar cultural restraint. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then he adds a little color, some context to it. He says, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and you may enjoy a long life on the earth. 
It's actually super interesting, right? Paul points out that unlike the other commandments given to Moses in what we now call the Ten Commandments, this is the only one that comes with a promise. You know the other ones like do not kill, do not covet, do not steal. Unlike those, this one comes with a promise from God. If you honor your mother and father, things will go right. To the Colossians, he writes something similar. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And, as we were saying, this is not breaking any new ground. This is what every father knew was demanded of their children. But then Paul, to, to both churches, he addresses the children's fathers. Interestingly enough, he doesn't have any, anything to say to the moms. Apparently, he didn't feel the need to address their parenting style. But he does say something to the fathers. Ephesians chapter 6, fathers, do not exasperate your children. There's that word again. Instead, he says, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Exasperate, it turns out here. Other translations use the word provoke. Fathers, don't provoke your children. Other translations stir up anger. And then he tells the Colossians the exact same thing. Fathers, do not embitter your children. Again, other translations, provoke or stir up anger within your children. Well, first you have to see how revolutionary this is. Paul, in these words, he changes the status of children. They were once treated as objects and possessions. Now they're treated with honor and respect. They matter. Their feelings and emotions matter. He warns uh, fathers that they're in, danger of embitter, they're in danger of embittering their kids. The Greek word there for embitter indicates that we're supposed to be careful that we don't provoke our children to a settled anger where a bitter root begins to grow. Now, this command is not saying that we should never make our children mad. There's times when that's inevitable. However, the idea here is that we've got to guard against provoking an anger that's constant and seething, kind of like a smoldering fire. Why is that important? Paul tells you, Dad. He says, fathers, don't embitter your children or they're going to become discouraged. I love the New American Standard translation. Fathers, do not exasperate your children that they may not lose heart. Is it only me that finds it interesting that the preeminent teaching about fathering in all of the scriptures, which is found almost word for word in multiple places, is a simple one sentence negative command. There's only one thing and it's a thing we must not do. Dads, don't embitter your children. Don't stir up anger in your kids. Why is that? My guess, based on my experience, is this. Dads, we have to be careful because this is our default mode. Left uncorrected, unreflected upon, left to our own natural devices, what appears to quite naturally come to us, dads, is embittering our kids. We're good at it. We don't have to try. Apparently, it just comes quite naturally. Paul recognizes how important this is, and if you don't stop doing this, you're going to raise children, dad, listen to me. You're going to raise children that lose heart, that are discouraged, that lose hope. I, I want to be a father who brings hope. I mentioned the theologian Barclay before. He helps clarify the issue. He says there's always a problem in the relationship of a parent and a child. If the parent is too easygoing, the child grows up undisciplined and unfit to face life. 
But there's a contrary danger. The more conscientious a parent is, the more he's likely always to be correcting and rebuking the child. Simply because he wishes the child to do well, he's always on his case. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, here's what he wrote. He goes, I know that my father loved me, but he didn't seem to wish me to see it. There's a certain kind of constant criticism which is the product of this misguided love that flows quite naturally for us dads. See, the danger of all this is that the child becomes discouraged. It's one of the tragic facts of religious history that the great church father, the founder of, of the Protestant movement, Martin Luther, his father was so stern with him that Luther, all of his days, found it difficult to pray, our father. The word father in his mind stood for nothing but severity. The duty of the parent is discipline, but it's also, dads, it's also encouragement. Luther himself said, spare the rod and spoil the child, it's true, but beside the rod, keep an apple to give him when he does well. See guys, Paul's warning us dads, be fathers who raise kids with heart and hope. Now how do we do that? Well, I wanna give you a couple quick thoughts and then you can go hit the golf course. First, and I am as guilty as anybody with this. First, we have to remember as dads, we are under fathers. Let me tell you what I mean. As the pastor of this church, I'm not the pastor. I am the under pastor. You see, Jesus is the great shepherd. The people of this church are his flock, his sheep, not mine. I shepherd under his authority. I lead in the direction in which he goes, not my own. This flock is not mine, it's his. It's the same with being a dad. I know with each of my kids, as I mentioned earlier, I had hopes and dreams and plans for each of them. I'll tell you right now what they were. The boys were gonna be big and strong, athletic, and did I mention they were gonna be super smart? They were gonna win every fight they ever got in, they were gonna score every touchdown for their team, they were gonna field every ball flawlessly, and they weren't gonna get anything but straight A's. My girls, I had plans for them too. They were gonna be stunning and beautiful and ladylike and super smart too. They were gonna be the homecoming queen in school and they were gonna have a, an essence of purity and innocence that only rivaled the new fallen snow. See, that was my plan for them. Problem is that these kids aren't mine. I'm an underdad. They have a heavenly father and he has a plan for them too. See, they may look a little bit like me, but they're actually made in his image. I had plans for them, but it turns out that God tells them that he knows the plans he has for them. I had some things I wanted them to achieve, but as Paul told the Ephesians, it turns out that they are God's handiwork, not mine, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for them to do. Dads, I think the number one way we exasperate our kids, the way we crush their spirit the most, is we forget we're under dads. We have hopes and dreams and aspirations for them, and gosh, if I'm super honest here, at least in my case, a lot of that, uh, ha uh, having them achieve and be successful is tied to me because of how it makes me look and feel. How messed up is that? 
And see, God didn't create them to be a reflection of us or on us, but of and on Him. And what happens is when our kids don't live up to the dreams, and guys, realistically, what kid could live up to the dreams? We have a way of communicating to them, sometimes in words. Those words are just crushing to our kids. You know this because you're carrying around some of those words. They can be like boulders. But more often than not, it's in, it's in looks of disapproval or a general disinterest. We communicate that they're disappointments. Don't think I'm right about this? Then ask yourself this question and be honest. Why is it that no matter how old we get, this is especially true for, for men, why is it that the older we get, we're still trying so hard to impress our dads. And so what do we do? Well, here's what Paul told the Ephesians. He said, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. I think he actually describes it more clearly in the letter he writes to the church in the, in the city of Thessalonica. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, Paul wrote. And then he describes how a father does that. Encouraging comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. I like that, dads. That's refrigerator magnet material for every father. Three things. Encourage, comfort, and urge. Guys, encourage your children so they don't lose heart. Forget your interests, your plans for them. You're an underdad. God gave them different interests. And so what interests them now must interest you. This is part of the revolutionary concept Paul was introducing. If you're a jock and God gave you a band kid, it's time to take some piano lessons. You don't discourage. You encourage. If your kid, if he's struggling in school, right? If he's struggling in school, you, you need to figure out how he learns, how she learns, what the right environment might be for them to succeed. Be their biggest cheerleader, not distractor or detractor. It's not your role to be their critic. The world will provide plenty of that. Because when you are, they lose heart. Now here's a test for you, Dad. Ask your kids, what one thing have I communicated you about yourself more than any other thing? Eek. That's a tough one. Maybe start by asking their mom what she thinks you might be communicating. And don't be defensive, guys. We need to learn and we need to listen. In my own parenting, I try to communicate lots of things, but if it was just one thing, I hope they have heard from me over and over and over. If it's one answer I'd hope they'd give to that question, it would be that I'm proud of them. Dads, you cannot tell your kids often enough, I mean like multiple times a day, every day, their whole life long, make sure they know you are proud of them. Paul says comfort your kids so they don't lose heart. See, we tend to think of comforting as men as more of kind of a mom's role. It's, it's our job to be the tough guys, the quiet guy, the disciplinarian. And especially as the kids get older, sometimes Look, let's be honest, it's a little harder to be a comforter for, for us guys. 
Uh, when they were little, we hugged and snuggled with them. But now that they're teenagers, physically, it's a little harder to do. And even emotionally, it gets more difficult to engage in deep and hard conversations. And so it just becomes easy to stay distant, and say nothing, and hope it'll all be okay. Paul says, dads, don't do it. Push past the awkwardness. Be a comforter, dad. And then, finally, he, he says, urge your kids so they don't lose heart. Urge them, not to your goals or your dreams, though. Remember, you're an underdad. Instead, urge them to live lives worthy of God. He's calling them to his kingdom and his glory. Dads, you have to urge your kids towards God. There is no greater responsibility you have. And I'm telling you, there is no one, no one who is going to have more impact on the faith of a child than a father. A fascinating study con conducted by the Swiss government was published in the year 2000. It reveals astonishing facts with regard to generational transmission of faith and religious values. In short, the study reveals that it's the religious practice of the father of the family that, above all, determines the future faith of the children. And ladies, I know that this isn't fair, but here's what the study reported. If both father and mother attend church regularly, 33% of the kids will wind up as regular churchgoers, and 41% will attend irregularly. So you'll have, you know, 74% that are going to church, at least involved in their faith. Only a quarter of their children will wind up not practicing at all. If a father is irregular and a mother's regular, stick with me on this, the father is irregular, mother's regular, only 3% of the kids will subsequently become regular churchgoers themselves. While 59% become irregular, 38% will be lost. If the father is non-practicing and the mother is a regular churchgoer, only 2% of children will become regular worshipers. 37% will attend irregularly. Over 60% of their children will be lost completely to the church. In short, here's how they summarize it. If a father does not go to church, no matter how faithful his wife's devotions are, only one child in 50 becomes a follower of Christ. But if a father goes regularly, regardless of the practice of the mom, between two-thirds and three-quarters of the kids come to faith. Under dads, can I beseech you, there is no one who is going to have more impact on and has more responsibility for the faith of your kids than you. Urge them towards God. And so that's it for me, this Father's Day morning dads. You know how I'm <laughs> I'm afraid you don't know how important you are. I'm afraid you've forgotten how much weight your words carry. I'm uncertain you realize how much blessing you have the power to bestow. Gentlemen, Paul warns us repeatedly what my wife first told me not to do. I should just listen to her more often. Don't, exas don't exasperate your children, but instead encourage them comfort them and urge them towards their God-given destiny. And if you don't think it matters, remember this. Jesus, all grown up at the age of 30, 30, who's about to begin his ministry, he comes to be baptized at the River Jordan, and God, his Father, was there. 
And God, knowing what laid ahead for his son over the next three years of his life, the abandonment, the criticism, the hardship, the homelessness, the harshness, God chose at that moment to break into our world with one message that he thought his son needed to hear that would enable him to endure all that this world was going to throw at him so that he wouldn't lose heart. You remember what God knew his son needed to hear? This is how Matthew heard it. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And if Jesus needed to hear that from his dad, well then, guys, I guess we have our marching orders. Don't exasperate, encourage, comfort, and urge. I'll see you in the parking lot Saturday night.